Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, This Man Welcomes Sinners, The Parable of the Prodigal Son. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 10th, 2013, the fourth Sunday in Lent. In the fall of 2003, I spent two weeks in Oxford doing some research and writing. One Sunday morning, I walked down to St. Aldate's Church on Pembroke Street in the center of town. No one knows for sure who St. Aldate's was, but the church's first rector, Reginald, started serving the church in the year 1226. As I walked into St. Aldate's, the usher enthusiastically greeted me. He said, we welcome all sinners. Those were words I needed to hear. They summarized the mission of Jesus, who said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They also echo the accusation of his enemies in this week's gospel, who complained, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus made a lot of enemies in a short time. Broadly speaking, his detractors fall into two categories, the politically powerful, who executed Jesus, and the religiously self-righteous, who are the subject of this week's gospel. <clears throat> the gospels tell how Jesus violated rituals of religious purity and ate with many sinful people and how, according to the gospel, there were many sinful people who followed him. This large following of moral outcasts felt safe with Jesus, sheltered rather than judged. His identification with them was a central rather than a peripheral characteristic of the kingdom that he announced, so much so that his enemies dismissed him as a drunkard and a glutton. When questioned why he befriended these dirty people, Jesus was unapologetic. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. There's a whole group of parables that emphasizes how God welcomes sinners. <clears throat> As Joachim Jeremias observes in his book, The Parables of Jesus, these parables have a unique characteristic they're all addressed directly to the enemies of Jesus. These parables don't merely announce the good news, they also vindicate it. Jeremiah says, they are a controversial weapon against the critics and foes of the gospel, who are indignant that Jesus should declare that God cares for sinners. Some of these parables describe what sinners are like. They're sick and needy, vulnerable in a world that prizes power and religious righteousness. Jesus says that these outcasts understand God better than the insiders. In the parable of the two sons, for example, Jesus says that tax collectors and whores will enter the kingdom of God before the chief priests and elders. 
Why? Because they know their brokenness and thus their need for repentance. True prodigals have no pretensions. They're like a son who initially refused to obey, but then later did obey. Jesus' opponents, on the other hand, did the opposite. They pretended to obey, but really didn't. Similarly, in the parable of the two debtors, during a, din during a dinner, a harlot stood behind Jesus weeping, wiping his feet with her hair and anointing him with perfume. In her brokenness, she disregarded all social propriety in order to express her profound gratitude. When the host objected, Jesus told a parable about two debtors, one who owed a huge sum and another a small sum. Both were forgiven, but the former was more grateful. And then Jesus drew a sharp contrast. The immensity of the woman's sin led to unbounded gratitude when it was forgiven. But the self-righteous host was rebuked because he hadn't shown Jesus the least sort of grateful attention. Needy people know repentance. They're grateful when helped. The religiously righteous, on the other hand, often don't know much about repentance or gratitude because they've never even imagined their own poverty of spirit. A second group of parables invites Jesus' self-righteous detractors to consider what they themselves are like. In the parable of the two sons, they're like a child who didn't do what he promised. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus compared his opponents to tenants who humiliated the owner of a vineyard and then murdered the heir. And in the parable of the wedding feast, he said they're like socially respectable people who reject a royal invitation with pathetic excuses. So why do they scorn sinners who do accept the invitation? In one of his most caustic attacks in all the Gospels, <clears throat> Jesus strings together a series of word pictures for this sort of religious hypocrisy. His religiously righteous enemies, said Jesus, were like blind guides, filthy cups, whitewashed tombs, unmarked graves, and poisonous snakes. These loveless people are not the sort of people you'd want to meet if you understood yourself as a needy and vulnerable sinner. And then thirdly, there are the parables that describe what God is like. The story of the prodigal son was told to those who complained that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We're familiar with this story about a son who shamed his family by asking for his inheritance, who squandered it all in hedonistic excess, then found himself on skid row eating pig food. But as we just saw, people who hit rock bottom often know quite a bit about repentance, and we read that this man came to his senses. While the son was still far off, the fatherly, utterly undignified for the Orient, ran to him and embraced him. 
Instead of treating him as a hired hand, as his son had requested, he celebrated him as an honored guest, with a robe, a ring, and a party. So why does Jesus eat with sinners? Because that's what God is like. He's good and gracious. He loves without limits. He's full of compassion for us in the midst of our brokenness. He pays a full day's wages for one hour of work. <clears throat> but watch out for the religiously righteous. They can be like the elder brother who resented his father's lavish grace. Or like Jonah who complained when the Ninevites repented and God forgave them. Many people, Jesus warns us in another parable, are, quote, confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Some people, in other words, have a need to be right and to be seen as being right. In the epistle for this week, Paul says that, quote, God gave us this ministry of reconciliation. And so it's interesting to ask, do real sinners feel really welcome in our churches? And here's a radical idea. Extend this divine mercy to your own self, for that's what God has already done. Much of the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889, is characterized by darkness and despair, reflecting his lifelong interior struggles. After converting to Catholicism, which estranged him from his Anglican family, Hopkins burned much of the poetry he had written, and even stopped writing for seven years. After ordination as a Jesuit priest, an assignment in Ireland left him feeling isolated and melancholy thus giving rise to his so-called terrible sonnets. But somewhere in his darkness, Hopkins felt God's light. He moved beyond self-reproach to divine acceptance. In one of my favorite poems, My Own Heart, he describes an interior conversation about accepting God's smile upon his life. Listen to his poem. <clears throat> My own heart, let me have more pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind, charitable. Not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. I cast for comfort I can no more get by groping round my comfortless than blind eyes in their dark can day or thirst can find thirsts all in all in all a world of wet. Soul, self, come, poor Jack self. I do advise you, jaded, let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. Let joy sighs at God knows when to God knows what, whose smile is not wrung, see you. Unforeseen times, rather, as skies between pie mountains, lights a lovely mile.
In other words, accept one another and accept that you yourself are accepted. For books this week, we have a guest review by David Werther, who has reviewed a book, a bi autobiography or memoir by the singer Neil Young. It's called Waging Heavy Peace by Blue Rider Press, 2011. And in conjunction, the CD by Neil Young with Crazy Horse called Psychedelic Pill, also from the year 2011. This past fall, Neil Young released a two-CD studio recording called Psychedelic Pill that charted in Billboard's Top Ten, and along with it, an autobiography, Waging Heavy Peace, which, in fact, has been a New York Times bestseller. Young dedicates his book to his family. For Ben Young, my hero, my warrior, and his mother, brother, and sister. Young's hero warrior, in fact, is a quadriplegic who takes nourishment through a feeding tube. His older brother, Zeke, had been diagnosed as having cerebral palsy, but it was later determined that he suffered from a stroke in utero. Neil Young and his wife, Peggy, are devoted parents. Always a lover of trains, Neil built a huge Lionel train layout to enjoy with Ben, designing it so that Ben could work the switch system with his hand. In one of his least appreciated releases, Trans, Neil scrambled the vocals, mirroring the communication difficulties that Ben faces. Because he, Neil Young writes, because of Ben's quadriplegia, he couldn't talk or communicate in a way that most people could understand. So I made a record where I sang through a machine, and most people couldn't understand what I was saying either. I felt like it was art, an expression of something deeply personal. I called it tran, meaning trying to get across from one world to another. Being locked in a body without an intelligible voice. Trying to communicate through the use of machines, computers, switches, and other devices. It was a very deep and inaccessible concept. Ben's mother, Peggy, founded the Bridge School to help children with communication disorders. Neil Young himself has not had an easy time of it. As a child, he battled with polio, and as a young man, he had epileptic seizures. More recently, he survived a brain aneurysm. After seeing his sports writer father, Scott Young, go into dementia at the end of his life, trying to avoid a similar fate, Young gave up marijuana and threw in drinking for good measure. He is straight for the first time in decades, and a bit concerned that sobriety may cast a pall on his ability to write songs. As the book's position on the New York Times bestseller list attests, though, it has not interfered with his ability to write a memoir. 
Jung assures us that he could never and would never work with a ghostwriter. What we have in Waging Heavy Peace, then, is Neil Young's voice without the tampering of a co-author. This is in keeping with Young's approach to recording, often preferring first takes to more polished versions of signs. Young writes in his autobiography, When music is your life, there is a key that gets to you to the core. I am so grateful that I still have Crazy Horse, knock on wood. You see, they are my window to the cosmic world where the muse lives and breathes. I can find myself there and go to that special place where those songs graze like buffalo. The herd is still there, and the plains are endless. Neil Young, an autobiography called Waging Heavy Peace, and along with it, a new two-CD studio recording called Psychedelic Pill, both from the year 2000. <clears throat> For movies this week, I review Django Unchained from 2012. Quentin Tarantino's Spaghetti Western has drawn criticisms for its graphic violence about slavery, even though parody is always near. Spike Lee said he refused to see the film because it was demeaning to blacks. Tarantino responded that the historical reality was far worse than his cinematic fiction. And in fact, it's no more violent than any of his other films, which isn't much of a caveat, I admit, but fans and critics will still love it. It was nominated for four Oscars. Christoph Waltz plays an itinerant German dentist and bounty hunter named Dr. Schultz. He recruits and frees a slave named Django to help him identify further wanted men. They then go to a Mississippi plantation called Candyland in order to rescue Django's wife, and where the especially vile owner, Calvin Candy, and his Uncle Tom of a servant, Stephen, rule with despicable cruelty. In the end, the unchained Django comes unhinged, as it were, and delivers vicious vigilante justice. Django Unchained. And for poetry in the fourth Sunday of Lent, we've posted the great passage from Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 9. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. 
Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 10th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.